12, verses 1 to 16. Should be on the screen behind. Page number 1139, if you're following it, uh, where you're sitting. 1139, Romans 12, 1 to 16. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just if each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be pride, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at part of it and touching on one or two of the other bits in it as we go through. But first, let's pray. Father, may your spirit who inspire Paul in writing this letter in the first case inspire us this morning to receive from you, for you to challenge us, to comfort us, and to change us. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I know that's not my usual greeting. It's the one actually from Mama Hope, from our partners in, in Kasaro. But she has this wonderful way, whenever she's standing in front of a church congregation, that's always the way that she begins. And it focuses on, on who we are together as we worship, that we are church. And that's a good way of coming in to where we're going to be over the next few weeks as we look at what it means to be church. Through the Old Testament, there's constant reference towards the assembly of God's people, the kahal. 
It's there in Numbers 10, and when Moses is, is told to draw water from the rock, and Aaron goes and he brings the kahal, the assembly of God's people together to witness what is going on. It's there in many of the Psalms. I will praise you in the great congregation, is the way it's sometimes translated, or in the great assembly, that drawing together of God's people. In the Greek Old Testament, that gets translated into Ecclesia, where we get things like ecclesiastical from here. And it forms the root of the word church. That drawing together, that coming together of a people with a person, with a direction, and with guidance. If you're living in um, somewhere like Athens or Corinth or somewhere like that, there would be an Ecclesia. It would be the town council. It would be that grouping together of people to drive things forward with a specific purpose and a specific calling. And that's true for us too, as God's community. Because our rootedness as Christians is in community. It's right there in the baptism service. We welcome the candidates into the church at that service. We're asked to pray Will you help those who are being baptized to live and grow within God's family? And we pray for the candidates that they might, within the company of Christ's pilgrim people, may daily be renewed by his anointing spirit. There's that sense of being drawn into community, of being drawn together as the assembly of God's people, which makes for church. And that's what makes the question that we so often get asked at our secondary schools morning, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? A slightly odd one to answer in a sense, because if you are a Christian, you are church. You are part of that body. You may choose to absent yourself from it, but if you do, you're losing out. Because I think the only way we really grow as disciples is when we meet together in community when we meet together in assembly as church. There's an old Ugandan proverb which says it takes a whole village to raise a child. And it takes all of us to raise each other, to be the disciples that God wants us to be. I was very struck by one of the testimonies at last Easter's baptism services here. One of those who was baptized, um, she said... I found myself through the Alpha Cautious, I found myself falling in love with Jesus and falling in love with Jesus' people. That's one of the most incredible testimonies I think I've heard. That sense of being drawn in to the assembly of God's people, being drawn in to church. You've all been well brought up, so you know that church isn't building its people. But, what comes first into your mind in terms of words if you were going to describe church? Just turn to each other for a moment and, and just, just see what that might be. Listen to what your neighbor is saying, so I'm going to ask you what your neighbor said in a minute. <laughs> okay, um, so I want you now to put up your hand if your neighbor used a noun to describe church. They talk about it being body or, or, or temple or whatever. Put up your hand if your neighbor used a verb to describe church. 
There's a bit of that going on. Okay. In our series, we're going to be looking at verbs that describe church, what it means to be being church. When there are masses of nouns we could have gone through, we could have gone through the bride of Christ, we could have gone through the body imagery that's there all over the place, and we could have gone about living stones being built into a temple and so on. Now, the nouns are great. The Bible writers give us plenty of it. But one of the danger of nouns is that we can stand on the outside of them and just look at them objectively. When we start to use verbs to describe church, we have to become involved. We can't stand on the outside and look in. We're drawn in to doing things. I think our publicity was slightly over the top when it said we're going to look at all the one another verbs that are in the New Testament. Um, we've only got a certain amount of time this term to do it. But we're going to look at many of them. Some of them we expect to see, don't we? Love one another, but, um, verbs like that. Others might surprise us a bit. Greet each other, one another with a holy kiss. How do we talk about that in a hash me too um, scenario? And bearing in mind that most occurrences of that phrase don't have the word holy in it. And it's probably the most frequent one another, frequently used one another verb in the, in the New Testament. Interesting. See where we get to when we get to that one. It will happen later in the series. When we use verbs, we start asking questions about what does it mean to live that verb out? What does it mean to be church by loving one another or whatever? And we're going to start with that, with looking at honoring one another. It's there in what Hilda read, read for us in verse 10 of, of Romans 12. Honor one another above yourselves, or as, as an alternative translation is, outdo one another in showing honor. I'm trying to think of both of those senses in what follows. Maybe this is the, one of the one another verbs that surprises you a bit. Honor isn't a word that we use very often, is it, these days? Well, it has been, I guess, over the past week or so with the New Year's Honours list and the, the honourable and right honourable members who have um, just been elected. And last weekend, I was officiating at my brother's wedding. And among the formalities were this, Derek, will you take Valerie to be your wife? We who love her, comfort her, honour her, and protect her. So maybe I should get... Um, Chris and Ruth to come up at the moment and explain what honoring one another looks like in the context. No, you'd rather I dealt with this. You're right, okay, thanks. <laughs> honoring one another. One dictionary I checked gave three basic meanings to that verb. It was to show great respect for someone or something. It was to give someone public praise or reward, taking that as being encouragement. Or is to do what you promised or agreed to do. You know, you honor the repayment of a debt. You honor your mortgage payment, whatever it might be. So there's a commitment as well. Respect, encouragement, and commitment. All aspects of what it means to honor one another. Let's begin with respect. And, and one commentator translated verse 10 as this. Show the way to one another in respect. 
Show the way to one another in respect. In other words, take the lead in respect. As you meet together, take the lead in respecting other people. Now, it can be very easy, can't it, to respect those who are like us, those who maybe share our views on Brexit, those who share our particular theological foibles, those who share the same education as us, the same status, maybe the same language, maybe even the same nationality. That becomes quite easy to do. But what about respecting the other? Those who you find it hard to get along with, those who come with very radical different views to you, how do you respect and honor them? Because being church is a calling to honor and to respect the differences as well as the similarities that we have. Jack was speaking at the last service. He talked about when we honor one another, we show Jesus to others. And there's something about walking into a community where there is mutual respect that is obvious, which is really encouraging and really attractive. And we are called to respect. You see, Paul used this verb in this letter to the Romans where they were in a complete diverse bunch of people who were meeting. Some of them would have been slaves from all parts of the empire and beyond. Some of them were Jewish converts. Some of them were from the Roman upper classes, possibly even from the imperial household. Some were highly educated. Some were of very low status. That comes out in our reading of being willing to, to mix with those of low status, Paul says. He challenges them about where their respect is being shown. They're much more diverse than Christchurch Winchester. And Paul talks about respecting, about honoring one another in the context of this very mixed community. Honor one another above yourselves. How willing are we to be transformed by those who are very different to ourselves. How often in our conversations and in our determination of where God might be leading, do we turn to those who we think will have the same sort of thought patterns as ourselves? Where are we willing to go elsewhere and to be shaped by them? Think of three personal examples of that. David Shepherd um, wrote his book, Built as a City, out of his experience of working in the Docklands area just as the docks were closing and unemployment was rising and jobs were disappearing. And I think it was through reading what he had to write on working in that community that's probably formed the foundation of my own political thinking from that time onwards, from reading that book back in the early 19, back in the 1970s. He was writing from a very different context to the one I'd grown up in and the one that I knew. And yet I was willing, I needed to learn from what he also had learned from a very different background to change the way I viewed things as a Christian. Some of you here will have met Bishop Zach from Kampala. And it was his challenge about the way in which we interacted with Kalewe, 
that led me to research the impact of unthinking monetary and financial aid into East Africa and to Uganda in particular, and to change my understanding of what needs to be considered when we give in those situations, or maybe we don't give in those situations. Again, somebody who came from a very different background to me, from a, a colonial point of view still in the West. They are poor, they need help, we must give money. And yet Zach was very clear that just doing that could do more harm than good. And I needed to listen to that voice. Last year in Uganda, actually no, it was two years ago, no, it was in 2018 in the summer when we took the team out to Uganda, it was great. We had a real good time of mixing with the peers of our um, 18 to 20-year-olds. But a huge debate blew up about what did it mean to live a Christian life? Did it mean that we had a list of do's and don'ts that we lived, lived by? And um, our lot was saying, this is legalistic. You know, we, we know that salvation's free. You've got to do this, that, and the other. And our Ugandan colleagues were coming back and saying, but how do you make sure you live holy lives? How do you actually, what do you measure your life against to do that? And it led to one of the most incredible Bible studies, I think, in diocese and prayers that I've been there over the past what, seven or eight years, nine years that I've been visiting that place. As we grapple together from very different viewpoints to respect each other's point of view and to learn and be changed by each other. Are we willing to respect each other so that as disciples, we will grow by being transformed by those who also are being transformed as we let God speak to us as we respect. Paul says, outdo one another in showing respect. Are we willing to do that? And then there's encouragement. It's another use of that word honor is to encourage Thank you to those who have given me Christmas cards this year with little words of encouragement in. It's been great to receive those. For those over the past year who've been alongside me and just said those quiet words, I know it's been tough with sickness and bereavement and so on. And yet those words of encouragement that many of you have said have been things which have helped me to stay and to grow during that period. That's another part of what it means to honor one another we need to practice it regularly at all levels of whatever we call church, whether it's here on a Sunday, in our small groups, in, in whatever way we meet together, that we encourage one another. You know, it's one of the reasons why in the, in the small group notes, we say at the beginning of each session, look back over the past week and share how things have gone. Now, this isn't my old maths teacher's um, mental arithmetic test at the beginning of each lesson to try and catch us out. This is us meeting together to encourage each other. If things have gone well, rejoice with each other on that. If they haven't, mourn with each other that they haven't gone as well. Paul has that in our reading this morning of rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When I worked as a project manager many years back now, we usually held a debrief at the end of major projects. It's a time to get the team together, to talk through how the project had gone. And people were very quick to say, well, that went wrong and that went wrong. You know, we were over budget, we were late, we didn't test that, and so on. Now, those things are important. 
But what I really had to struggle with each time with the project teams was to say, what went well? What was there that we want to do again next time because it made us feel good, because it helped us? Very often, when that came out, it wasn't so much the things that went wrong, but it was the way in which the team had worked together, the way in which they'd encouraged each other during that time. There were other things, maybe technical and so on, that came out as well, but it was actually saying, how can we be encouraged? How can we encourage one another? How do we do that here, I wonder? It means we have to walk alongside each other. We're walking alongside those who maybe are on top of the world. And maybe we're feeling, I don't know how to encourage them more, they're already there. But we need to do that. But also those who are struggling, nudging them on. We're going to look at spurring each other on later on in the series. And we'll look a bit more at that then. But that sense of being able to quietly encourage one another. And lastly this morning, as we honor one another, we do that when we commit to each other. When we commit to each other. You don't need me to tell you that we live in a me, me culture. Individualism is, is rife. It's a society in which loneliness is one of the biggest issues. Of people on their own and not knowing where to turn to. We live in a society which craves relationship and community which is terrified of commitment. And it ends up with what one sociologist calls liquid love. Um, the front cover of his book is, is, is an incredible picture of that. It just shows a heart that somebody has um, carved out in the sand on a beach. And it shows the tide coming in. And isn't that so often where we are? It's a love which is there or a commitment which is there for a period. And then it goes again. And inevitably, I think this has crept into the church as well. For many Christians, church becomes a place which serves and fulfills their personal needs. Well, great church can do that, but that isn't the purpose for us meeting together. It's actually as we come together to commit to each other. People will look for their personal desires and likes. Maybe it's the music, maybe it's the length of the sermon, maybe it's the people who attend, maybe it's, well, perhaps you've got your own, you can add to that. The problem with that is that commitment is exercised until things don't quite look right where you are and there's a better offer at a church down the road and you disappear. One person, one writer on, on, with writing letters to the church recently has said that the way we grow is where we stay together and we work through things thick and thin. And I look around you as a congregation this morning and I know with many of you, we've walked for the well over 40 years together. And there's been that, hasn't there? I'm seeing some nods from those of you who've been around that long. A commitment to each other. Because that consumerist me, me church isn't what I see in the pages of the New Testament. I see a church which was committed to each other. A church which got it wrong. A church which had arguments and rows. But a church which was diverse, yet stuck together. Think of the original 12 that Jesus called as prototype church. 
you had the thunderous fishing brothers. You had the tax collector, agent for the hated empire. Simon the Zealot, who would have that empire destroyed by any means. Nathaniel, the professional cynic. Thomas, who never quite understood it and always wanted to raise the questions. Not to mention Judas, who would end up betraying Jesus. But somehow Jesus welded them together into a group. And there was mutual encouragement, I'm sure, going on in that. The women who followed him were a mixed bunch too. Mary Magdalene, the Samaritan woman, Mary and Martha, and their radically different ways of seeing what service meant. Had Joanna, whose husband worked in Wicked Herod's household. Again, what a mixture of people. And yet Jesus wields them together into church. Don't get me started on Corinth and the factions there. Or the guys in James's epistle who were literally throwing punches at each other. I don't think we ever quite got to that here. We've had some decent rows at times. But we've then respected each other and come back together afterwards. We're to be committed to a mixed community. I think it's a commitment which places meeting together as a high priority. I was reading the story of a church leader who in his previous life had been very involved in a fairly violent gang culture before his conversion. But, um, you know, he was saying, I can't really imagine me going along to one of those gang meetings one week. Sorry, how was it last week? Sorry, I missed it. You have no idea what sort of week I had. But I wonder how committed are we to meeting regularly together? One writer went as far as to suggest that our commitment priorities should be ranked first church, second family, third everything else. I'll leave you to think about those over lunch. You may not think that's the order they should be in, but what's your order and why do you think it is that order? Yes, there are difficult um, balances, aren't there? One church couple I was speaking to on one occasion got really worried because they overheard their two kids going upstairs and saying, let's go and play mummies and daddies and go out to a meeting. I see some nods of acknowledgement from one of you on that one. But there is, in a sense, isn't there, as a commitment. If you're in a small group, say of six of you, and one of you is missing one week, it changes the group dynamics, doesn't it? Because there's only five of you now. But actually, I think the same applies to us as we meet as the 11.15 congregation on a Sunday morning. If you aren't here, we miss you. It's not just you who's missing out, it's the rest of us as well, because you aren't here. But that also presents a challenge to the rest of us. Are we so committed to each other that we notice that somebody is missing on a Sunday? And do we follow that up with a quick phone call during the week just to see how they are? That's honoring one another by being committed. Church is important. It takes a whole village to raise a child. And our description as Christians must surely follow another African proverb, I am because we are. Honor each other above yourselves. We do that by respecting one another as we learn from each other. We do that by encouraging one another. And we do that by being committed to one another. So I don't know what you've written for your New Year's resolution so far. When you go home, just tear that up 
and just write in big letters somewhere and stick it on the fridge door. Honor others above myself. Outdo others in showing honor. Paul starts this chapter by saying that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the call to honor one another is a call for that transformation to be from me, 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 to we, we, we. Honor one another above yourselves. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'm going to ask us to spend a moment or two in quiet now. What I'd like you to do is think of one person who you are going to go and encourage this week, maybe after the service, maybe later in the week. But let's just spend some time just quietly asking God to show us one person we go to show encouragement to. Lord God, we ask that you would transform us by renewing our minds so that we may outdo each other in showing honor to one another, that others may see the sort of God that you are. Amen.